Welcome to Wisdom Talk Radio, a collaborative community of explorers in conscious living. The word freedom is something we, you know, we say we want with the implication being that we don't have it. We aren't free because of X, Y, or Z, whatever the situation may be. But what happens then is we look out, often we look outside ourselves to find fault and we lay the blame for our situation, what, whatever that is, whatever that may be out there, outside of ourselves. And then when nothing changes in our situation, our ego is safe in the notion that um, the situation isn't our fault because, of course, it's their fault and that's why nothing's changing. And that means that the the possibility of change isn't in our hands either. And so the cycle continues. The realm of possibility isn't even entered. What is possible, though? That's that's always that's what has moved me my whole life is what is possible? What is our potential? So I'd love for you to stay tuned to find out with my guest today, Fleet Mall. Let me welcome you first. I'm Laurie Seymour, host of Wisdom Talk Radio and CEO and founder of the Baca Institute. Head there to discover your quantum connection with your inner guidance by taking the quantum connection quiz. We're each designed to connect with source differently. And knowing your own style is the first step in aligning with your inner guidance at a deeper level than you ever thought was possible. It's the secret to having abundant flow in your business and your personal life. Dr. Fleet Mall, PhD and author, is a renowned growth mindset teacher who delivers his training programs and seminars around the world, both in person and online through Heart Mind Institute. He's a meditation teacher, executive coach, seminar leader, social entrepreneur who works at the intersection of personal and social transformation. Welcome Fleet to Wisdom Talk Radio. I'm really delighted you're here. Well, and, thank you for having me. Good to meet you, Lori. Yeah. And you know, what's, what's so interesting is um, when I first saw the, the title of your latest book, Radical Responsibility, it was like, of course, I want to interview you because when Wisdom Talk Radio first started about six and a half years ago, it was a, a, a collective of six people who were, um, who were doing it. And um, early on, we did an episode on radical responsibility where we had a conversation from each of our perspectives about it. So I'm, I'm really um, eager to have this conversation with you. Great. Looking forward to it. So because people often, I might even say usually, um, conflate responsibility with blame, I want to ask you, you know, what is in your in your experience radical responsibility and, and how does it transcend blame? Yeah, absolutely. And that is the key distinction, how it transcends blame and the distinction between ownership and blame. And we do often associate 
words like responsibility, accountability with blame, like who's in trouble now, right? Or mm-hmm. or we feel it's like a burden, a kind of heavy thing. But actually, as I'm sure is aligned with your show, or it's your show, uh, the theme of your show, it's actually the doorway to possibility and freedom. <laughs> so I usually define radical responsibility as voluntarily embracing 100% ownership for each and every circumstance we face in life day in and day out. And that includes the circumstances that we, you know, marshalling a bit of honesty, we can see we had something to do with, right? Either we maybe caused it completely or or we at least contributed to it or or maybe we're setting ourselves up unconsciously. Maybe we've got some, you know, life scripts that have carried over from childhood, some unconscious self-sabotage routines, whatever it might be. But we we all know not any of us, of course, but we all know those folks who sadly end up in the same dysfunctional relationship again and again, or even abusive relationship again and again, or the same dead end job again and again, or get taken advantage of in the same way again and again. And you have to wonder, is there some kind of unconscious underlying script going on there that they're playing out? And uh, so is that going on for us? Or did we simply allow something to occur by, you know, not paying attention, not doing our due diligence, not having the conversations we needed to have, being kind of lazy communicators or or not speaking up for ourselves or, or you know, just being unaware or being overly naive. Um, so there's all kinds of ways in which we may have uh, allowed a circumstance to arise or contributed to it and so forth. And then, of course, there are those circumstances that we get as honestly as honest as we can, and we can't really see we had anything to do with it. And everybody else would agree. And it just seems like the situation just fell out of the sky and landed on us, right? Well, at some and and we may very well feel victimized by that. And of course, people are victimized terribly in their lives, and um, terrible things happen to people. And of course, we're talking about adults here, not children. But even with adults, terrible things happen to adults. And so something could happen to us that that we may very reasonably have a lot of feelings about, and it may really knock us down. And we may need a lot of validation and support around that. But at some point, the salient question is going to be, what What am I going to do with this? Mm. Here it is now. It's in, it's in my life now. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not going to change. It's in my life. And whether it should be there or not, uh, it is. And the salient question is, am I going to let it take me down mm-hmm. and get mm-hmm. stuck in a you know, a victim position around it. Very reasonably so. It might be heroic to get out of there in some situations, but nonetheless, going to be very limiting uh, for my life possibilities if I stay stuck there. Mm-hmm. Or am I going to find what's the most creative way I can embrace this, the reality of this, right? Or, you know, whether it should be or shouldn't be, here it is. So can I embrace the reality of it and find the most creative way to move forward in my life? Um, you know, for my own enlightened self-interest, and which could include, in some cases, seeking justice and things like that, but from a place of empowerment, uh, as opposed to uh, a place of uh, blame or shame that we'll go more into. Mm-hmm. So with radical responsibility, the first step is often when we're in situations we're not happy about. <laughs> it's actually all, It also can be helpful to look at situations we are happy about, because understanding how we got there, then we can repeat the, the formula, right? Right. <laughs> But but mostly we tend to be concerned with situations we're not happy about. And so the first step is really to look into, can I see I had any relationship to this occurring? And that has absolutely nothing. You know, that might seem, OK, I'm gonna, then I'm going to beat myself up about that. But no, absolutely not. Yeah. It has absolutely nothing to do with blame. It's simply for learning. 
Because if I can see, you know, that I went from A to B to C to D and I don't like D, well, I can look back and see, okay, well, I could have taken a right turn instead of a left or I could have taken a different approach and I'm learning something and I see how a situation arose and now I can do something different in the future. So it's purely for the purpose of learning. And of course, well, learning and all- transformation, learning and change. Yeah, absolutely. And because we all have tendencies towards self-blame, you know, we need to work with that as well. And we need to develop a lot of self-compassion and a foundation of compassion and resilience so we can develop that capacity for radical honesty to really be able to look into things and purely to to learn from them and then to make changes without letting it tip us into that that self-blaming, which may be a habitual pattern for many of us. But at any rate, the basic idea has absolutely nothing to do with blame. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has nothing to do with blaming others, obviously, but it has not one iota to do with blaming ourselves. And it's certainly not about blaming victims. It's about ownership and choice and possibility. So that's so interesting that you describe it that way. Uh, and, and I absolutely agree. Um, and I, what was struck when you just said radical honesty, because it, it, my experience has been working with you know thousands of people over the years that when someone is willing to have that level of honesty with oneself, and honesty is nothing to do with blame. I mean, really, you're, you, I don't see people being honest when they're blaming themselves. But the being curious about what is it that is going on here, what is the pattern, that that's where the 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 journey or the path to freedom lies. Absolutely. Yeah, it has it has to begin there. Otherwise, we're we're just kind of living in the world of our, you know, of our uh, illusions and delusions and fantasies and wishful thinking about how life could be, should be. Why isn't it that way? We're not really dealing with life. And so we're we're not engaged in a way that can actually create a difference for ourselves and others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I see that so often in relationships whether it's primary relationships or friend relationships, where if both people have that willingness to want to want to know the truth, <clears throat> that's what I call it anyway. They want to know what what is real here. That takes us right through any conflict or um, or blame, certainly. But it, it it brings us to a point of being able to communicate in in real life, in real time about what's what's actually happening. Yes, even in, you know, many of the models around both self-compassion and compassion for others, which are both very, very important qualities, um, there's the notion of fierce compassion, right? Mm-hmm. Fierce compassion with ourselves and fierce compassion with others, which is really the the mixture of compassion and honesty, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, you know, obviously, uh, you know, if we have a relationship with someone, um, yeah, it's not about going up to strangers and telling them how they should lead their lives. Uh, and even with friends, that's not a good idea unless it's invited or welcome. But if we have a relationship with someone and they're open uh, to, you know, communication and they're desirous of of understanding things and, and making changes, then, then uh, one of the most compassionate things we can do is to be honest in a, you know, in a gentle and kind and skillful way, but to be honest, right? And then, of course, with ourselves, if we can't be honest with ourselves, uh, we're not doing ourselves any favors, right? So uh, even though we want to approach ourselves as our own best friend, uh, and really in a kind and, and, and gentle, non-aggressive way, but still a radically honest way, because that's the only way that we can really move forward in our lives. Yeah. So, Fleet, 
you have such an interesting background. <laughs> um, and I know you've told your story, or at least I imagine you've told your story thousands of times. Could you give us a sense of really where you came from and and why this has become your your teaching path? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I'm a baby boomer. I came of age in the 60s and uh, the 50s and 60s. And uh, good Roman Catholic, middle-class, Midwestern family, but nonetheless beset with alcoholism. And one of my parents was what's sometimes called an episodic alcoholic. Uh, was my beloved mother, who when she was sober was amazing, incredibly intelligent, artistic, and a wonderful mom. But once a week, once every other week, every now and then twice a week, she would drink and uh, completely transform into this very scary rageaholic. Mm -hmm. And it was literally a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of situation. Mm -hmm. And and I don't know exactly when it started, but but pretty I may have some memories from some family vacations before starting school, but definitely once school had started, you know, you'd come home from school and you could tell mom had been drinking mm -hmm. and it would just get worse and worse. And by the time my father got home, it would just be absolute chaos in the home and, and things being thrown. And eventually my mother would pass out. And um and the next morning you'd come down to breakfast and there she was and, and smiling mom again. And it was never discussed, right? It was never talked about. And it was like, it was a big secret. And uh, of course it wasn't a secret in the family, but it wasn't even a secret outside of family because it happened in social situations sometimes. And uh, when my father wasn't around and my brother was already off to school, she'd come after me. Uh, and, uh, and uh, so I had to deal with that. I remember actually when I was about, 11 or 12 years old, I physically threatened my mother. You know, I basically said, if you touch me again, I'm going to kick your ass, you know, and then she didn't, but I had to do that. And my father wasn't able to deal, deal with it. And, you know, I, I mean, this was the 1950s and there wasn't, you know, a lot of understanding around addiction and alcoholism. And certainly um, no conversation was, about it. No, and very few people in my parents' milieu would end up in AA, you know, um, unless they really happen to, you know, get connected serendipitously with somebody connected there. But, um, you know, and they're very much about appearances and keeping things on the to, to you know, um, on the quiet. And um, so at any rate, I grew up with that. And that creates this tremendous psychic splitting, you know, and, um, you know, and uh, even I, I was uh, one of five kids and I had an older brother, but ever the family all thought I was my mother's favorite. Maybe I was. Um, uh, so at any rate, there was uh, there was this real, you know, complete sort of splitting. And I, I emerged into adolescence with this huge gaping hole in my gut mm -hmm. and uh, trying to patch that up and fill it with anything I could. And uh, it just felt like a black hole in abyss. And I was just constantly trying to seal it up. And so, you know, I was just trying to do that with everything imaginable, sex, drugs, rock and roll and everything else. And uh, I also, uh, before all that occurred in my life, I remember, I remember the world being very, very magical and, and mm -hmm. feeling very plugged into reality and kind of this state of awe and, and, uh, and that completely went away, uh, you know, five, six years old, it may have had to do with my mother's alcoholism, it may have had to do with starting school, but it went away. And I wasn't happy about it. I wanted that back. And I was always looking for it. So that took me down a lot of twisted roads and into, you know, there was some sense of plugging back into something that felt like it had a little more 
reality and vividness to it with the with the drugs, the sex, the rock and roll, the music, the whole all that of that era. But of course, if you've got that hole in your gut and a propensity towards addiction because of it, then you know that those are dangerous roads to take and a lot of baggage. And they're all kind of mirage-like anyway. Um, so a- anyway, that was kind of my early adulthood path, and that continued on. I became very alienated and angry, went headlong into the counterculture, graduated from high school in 1968, one of the most tumultuous years in U.S. history politically and with all the assassinations and so forth. And and so I just went headlong into the counterculture of that area as a classic angry young man and went really deep into it, eventually into IV drug use and so forth. But I was always a spiritual seeker. And so I had this kind of split life. And eventually I left the country. Um, basically, when, when Nixon was reelected, uh, you know, I just couldn't handle being an American anymore and being in this mm-hmm. country. And I just mm-hmm. left. And I was also looking for something real. And and um, so I, I traveled as an expat throughout Latin America, ending up in Peru eventually and, and lived down there. Uh, for years in ex- expat. And then it, my journey there wasn't so much about the drugs. It was really exploring indigenous culture and the archaeology and just the adventure of it and, and just trying to find something real. Mm-hmm. And uh, but, you know, the drugs were around and, and eventually I I uh, fell into small time uh drug smuggling as a way to continue to live outside the system. And I justified that with all this us versus them thinking and and feeling, you know, the whole world I'd come from is all hypocritical and corrupt, and therefore I'm justified in doing this. And, um, you know, it took me quite a while to undo all that. Uh, but in the meantime, I actually uh, was living high up in the Andes Mountains in Peru, and I heard about the founding of Naropa, then Naropa Institute, Naropa University, where I know you spent some time teaching as well. And uh, I had already zeroed in on the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. I had the only books that had been published at that time, the Evans One series, uh, up in my little uh, adobe, you know, hut up in uh, up in the mountains of Peru in a very remote valley. And uh, so I was trying to do that on my own. And then I read about him. Somebody showed up at my house with a copy of Rolling Stone magazine from 19, the fall of 1974. And I read about him and about the founding of Europe, and I just knew I had to go there. And mm-hmm. eventually I managed to get up there and enroll. But I kept this shadow life going uh, and got very involved uh, in Europa. got my master's degree in in uh, contemplative psychotherapy there and, and, and became a close student of his, but kept a secret life going. And, uh, you know, was self-medicating around the cognitive dissonance of that, but literally spending about half the year, you know, in really sincere, deep exploration mm-hmm. of the Buddhist path and about half the year being a crazy person, you know, involved with the smuggling and all that goes along they, with that. They, so they do, they do coexist. It was a both and. <laughs> yeah. And and before I was able to untangle that, I, I earned my way into uh, a long uh, prison sentence in federal prison uh, for drug smuggling. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was actually sentenced in um, 1985 to 30 years, no parole. And I pretty much thought my life was over. I was 35 years old. The paper said I'd be 65 before I had any chance of release. Once I got to federal prison, this was after seven months in county jails and going through trial and all the rest of it, um, with quite an incredibly traumatic experience. The U.S. versus you is no small thing. (laughs) And... um, uh, and uh, eventually, after getting to the federal prison and getting there for a while, I finally kind of figured out how things worked. And I realized that 
uh, I fortunately was sentenced under the old law prior to 1987, and you got a lot of good time if you stayed out of trouble. So I realized that on 30 years, I would serve 18 and a half years if I managed to stay out of trouble. <laughs> and then it took my uh, appeal about three years to go through the courts, and they knocked off one count of a five-count aggregated sentence, and that reduced my aggregated sentence to 25. And then on that, I knew I'd serve 14 and a half, which still felt like forever. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, that is what I ended up serving. I managed to stay out of trouble, which is not easy in prison. Mm-hmm. And uh, because when you get in trouble, they start taking it away in chunks and you can't end up doing your time day per day. Actually, some prisons say, I did my sentence day per day. I don't, I don't think that's exactly something to be proud of, but right. people get some strange mindsets going in there. And at any rate, I did serve 14 years inside and then six months in halfway house and house arrest. So that was between 1985 and 1989. And uh, I have deep regrets about everything that got me there and all the harm I created being involved with drugs and drug smuggling. Um, And I have especially profound regrets on what I did to my son, who was nine years old when I went in. So he and his mother basically abandoned them and they went back to Peru and my son was growing up without a dad. Fortunately, my family was gave, you know, provided some financial support uh, to them a little bit. they brought him up to see me about every other year. Uh, but still, you know, he was basically growing up without a dad. And uh, and so, um, so I have a lot of profound regrets around all that. I do feel good about what I did with my time there because this was a huge wake-up call for me, obviously. I finally had to face the reality of all the incredibly selfish decisions I've been making for so long and all the justifications began to crumble and fall away. You know, I, I still had some in some just my head that, you know, like cocaine back in the 60s and 70s. 70s was a recreational drug. Everybody was doing it, blah, blah, blah. But sitting in 12-step meetings, which I immediately joined when I got there, I knew I had to deal with my substance abuse and alcohol issues. And listening to one man as a male prison, listening to one man after another talk about their lives and their families' lives completely unraveling around drug use and cocaine use and, uh, you know, uh, all that artifice of self-justification just crumbled away. And I had to really face, I've been involved in something incredibly harmful. And I was in complete um, 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 contrast to the ethical foundations of the Buddhist path I was on. And, uh, and I really had to face that. And that really became the whole next stage of my spiritual journey. And I also, I was just driven to leave my son a better legacy than just his dad went to prison or his dad died in prison, because I had no surety that I would survive my time. I was seeing people die by violence where I was, and it was a federal prison hospital where people were, were dying every day from AIDS. This was the height of the AIDS movement. They're dying from AIDS and cancer and liver disease. And people who were in general population, like myself, got sick and died there while I was there. Mm-hmm. So I had no surety that I would survive my time, but I wanted to leave my son a better legacy than just his dad went to prison or he died in prison. And so I, I was, and I knew whatever I'd be able to create there would come out of my practice. And so I just really started practicing like my hair was on fire. I was incredibly disciplined, incredibly dedicated to practice, but I also lived a life of service. I, I My day job was teaching school for 14 years, helping other prisoners learn to read or get their GED or study for college classes. We started the first hospice program anywhere in the world in a prison. And that was a big part of my life for uh, the last 11 of the 14 years I was there. Uh, you know, I, I led a meditation group in a chapel twice 
weekly, very involved in the 12-step work. So a real life of service. But when I wasn't doing that, I was up in my uh, up in my cell, um, you know, practicing meditation and studying. Mm-hmm. And I uh, lived this incredibly disciplined life. And, and uh, it was kind of like my ashram or monastery time for 14 mm-hmm. years, although the place I was at was nothing like an ashram or a monastery, <laughs> other than the fact that you got three mm-hmm. hots and a cot and there was some, everybody wore the same clothes and you didn't have outside responsibilities. Right. But other than that, it was a world of... Of, of constant chaos and anger and violence and and shaming. And on a good day, you only had maybe a half dozen encounters with either the staff or your fellow uh, prisoners that were incredibly demeaning, right? So, I mean, keeping up, you know, any sense of self-worth was incredibly challenging. And I'm incredibly grateful for the contemplative practices that I came in there with. Remembering I came in with 10... Ten years of Buddhist training and a master's yeah. degree from Europa University, so I, I came in with a lot of skills and understanding, mm-hmm. and then got dropped into this hell realm. And in some ways, it was you know a perfect storm, of, and uh, you either, allowed you me to go through a deep path of transformation. Yeah. yeah, I'm thinking about the energetics of it and the that constant really rage. You know that level of of vibration that is so. Um, really harmful. And I'm wondering how it is that you managed to, to be with that and to transmute that perhaps. Yeah. Well, two things, and it's really connects with the whole radical responsibility model. But when I got there, first of all, it was a big relief to get there to the federal prison because I've been trapped in this hellhole of a county jail for seven months. Oh. So I get to this big place. Um, you know, there's 10 buildings. They're all connected by these under half underground pathways. So you can go everywhere without going outside. Mm-hmm. Um, there were 1,300 prisoners there. Uh, about 300 in the uh uh, were general population like myself, and then there were 600 medical patients and 400 psychiatric patients. <laughs> and uh, it was a big place. There was yards. You could go out and walk in the yard. There was a recreational area, and uh, I was able to get a job. And But I really remember the very first day I got there, and after they took me in through, you know, where they bring you in and give you your, your prison clothes and so forth, and then I, I step out into this place, like walking down the halls, <laughs> I felt like I'd entered into a Fellini movement of of suffering. I was seeing men who were blind being helped down the hall, uh, uh, men being wheeled about in wheelchairs who were quadriplegic, paraplegic, or or emaciated with AIDS, uh, men coming out of the psych ward doing the the hell at all or Thorazine two-step. You know, I was just, it was just insane and such a world of suffering. But I'm very glad grateful for that moment because I arrived there really wrapped up in the drama of my own situation, right? I've just received this 30-year no-parole sentence. I thought my life was over. I was full of incredible pain and remorse over what I'd done to my son and how I'd let my family down and my teacher and my community and how I torched my own life, you know, and I was really caught up in that drama, obviously. And when I saw this suffering, it just completely shook me out of that. And I just said, oh, and I just immediately started, how, how am I going to show up and add value here? How am I going to show up and serve? And I, was, I really credit the influence of my teacher, Trump Rumshay, with that, but also my family. I'm, my family, despite its problems, had very good values. So, mm-hmm. you know, I just started showing up and figuring out how I could serve, how I could add value. So that was very important. Mm-hmm. The other part, though, was I quickly realized that this wor- was a world of tremendous rage and shaming. And, you know, almost at most prisoners all have a, you know, society thinks of them as the perpetrators, right? And society feels victimized and rightly so in many cases. 
Um, but prisoners see themselves as the victims, and they all have a huge victim story. Mm -hmm. And usually the way if you met someone, you know, you might go for a walk on the yard and, you know, um, one person tells their victim story and then the other person tells their victim <laughs> story. That's kind of like the bonding exercise, right? Mm -hmm. And after I went through that a couple of times, I certainly didn't want to hear my story anymore. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't want to hear their stories, which wasn't very compassionate, but it's just not where I wanted to live. Right. And And I realized that I was in this world of tremendous anger and rage and bitterness and and mindset of victimization and that if i didn't take a very proactive approach i could end up that way mm -hmm. and i didn't want to come out of prison that way angry bitter with a victim mindset i didn't want to live that way in prison fortunately i'd had enough training to know that so i realized that the only way out for me was to embrace 100%, even 200% ownership for having got myself in there and what I was going to do with it mm -hmm. and where, where it would take me. I really realized I had to just embrace that radical level of ownership and responsibility. And, you know, there were plenty of people that, that you know, I did a lot of people's time. You know, I, I refused to cooperate. Um, and it wasn't I was trying to be a stand-up guy. It was just my values. I couldn't, you know, see somebody else is going to do time instead of me. Somebody else's family is going to suffer instead of me. That didn't line up with my Buddhist values or my basic instincts as a human being and so i didn't cooperate but many people did and that's thus i became the kingpin and you know there were 30 40 people most of whom i didn't know but loosely connected when you know you're involved in that business there's just connections that go out forever and and so um you know all these people got deals including some people uh that were um, involved in much more serious stuff than i was mm -hmm. and uh plus when when you're being prosecuted by the government they don't play by the rules they break the law they break the rules they play hardball they make no bones about it and so you know i could have had uh spent my time you know with all those feelings of, of feeling victimized and anger towards all of that. And I just said, I'm not going to go there. And uh, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, we have a practice called Tom Lin, exchanging self for other on the medium of the breath, which is really about resolving any of those and dissolving those enmities that we might hold in those grievances. So to the extent that I had any of that going on, I really worked at dissolving it all. Yeah. And within not, you know, terribly long time, I really didn't have any enmity towards anyone. Uh, and I just was focusing on, you know, I got myself in here and, you know, that wasn't hard to see either. I earned my way there, but I got myself in here. Nobody else has really anything to do with it. Or if they do, that's irrelevant to my current situation. And it's completely up to me what, what I'm going to do with this and where that's going to take my life. So that's really where the radical responsibility model was born for me. Yeah. And then you're, you're moving, you've moved into that place of what is possible into the place of potential by virtue of having worked through and released any of any of the things that would hold you back and in what i see is how deeply blame self-blame situational blame whatever it is holds us back holds us back from being creative holds us back from co-creating what it is that's possible what it is that maybe we're even here to do and yeah, you, and that was a world where where the my fellow prisoners uh, were deeply mired in both blaming others and in self blame. Right they, right. they mostly talked about blaming others, but internally you knew they were also involved in a lot of self blame and yeah. you know on a, on ability, inability to forgive themselves. And of course, a lot of people that end up in prison have been victimized. In fact, the majority come from terrible backgrounds where mm -hmm. their their childhoods were full of trauma. I mean, people get programmed to go to prison. I I I really you know can't really blame my back. 
I mean, the alcohol is my family, but most people end up in prison come from much worse circumstances than that, right? So, so you know, they're just they're just full of this internalized shame and blame and so forth. And uh, so, you know, it, well, I was very lucky to come in with the skills and strengths and context I did because wow. most people come out of prison worse than they went in. So, what were you able to do? within it i mean you you did this meditation group you did education what were you able to do not so much from the like what your actions were but what shift did you see in some people that you were able to give witness to well i worked with a lot of people um because i taught school um you know i helped a lot of uh, my fellow prisoners uh, learn to read or get their ged and study for college classes and that was across all the ethnicities and races that were there and you know prisons are very segregated racially and there's a lot of enmity and a lot of racial and cultural clash between the groups and prisons and uh and you know you generally kind of keep to your own and uh so uh, I didn't, um, um, you know, I didn't make a point of trying to carry a flag about it and get myself uh, killed over it. But, but you know, I was very involved with uh, with men of every race as, you know, helping them get their education. Uh, once we started the hospice program, I'm caring for, uh, you know, people of every ethnicity, and every religious background and very intimate physical care, caring, you know, behaving people and and uh you know um you know people in really rough situations uh dying of aids and dying of cancer and, and liver disease and so forth and i spent most of my meal breaks and free time up in the hospital doing that kind of caregiving mm -hmm. uh and then you know i was into sports so you know i played basketball and that was i was one of the few uh white guys that played basketball and you know so i had probably more broad relationships uh, in the prison than just about anybody. And also, you know, for the staff, they would just assume you just be a convict, like, you know, get busted every now and then, you know, uh, you know, just be a thug, be a convict, because then they know who you are. And that, that's not who I was. But at the same time, I was really clear what my community was, my fellow prisoners. And, you know, you got to keep real boundaries with the staff. I mean, you know, you, you have a boss at work every day. You kind of may get to know them or be a little friendly. But basically, you keep real boundaries with the staff. And I knew what my community was. But at the same time, I wasn't going to embrace being a convict. Having that convict mentality, right? So people didn't quite know what to do with me, but I was very disciplined, so they respected that for the most part, and they, they, you know, saw me showing up and serving in various ways, and so you know, generally, you know, people did kind of respect it. But I, I know I influenced a lot of people that I work with in school, but we also had, I don't know how many men came through the meditation groups because it was basically a big inners group because this, mm -hmm. this facility, the general population was very transitory. Most men didn't like being there because it's a hospital and the guys who were still in the game, there wasn't a lot going on there compared to other penitentiaries. And, mm -hmm. and also most of the prisoners came from the West Coast or East Coast. So this was in Missouri, Southwest Missouri. And so, you know, probably the average standard general population population was, I don't know, a year at most. And I was there for 14 years. So I saw people coming and going constantly. Mm -hmm. And so our meditation group was pretty transitory. We did have, you know, a few guys that were there for three or four years and got deep into the practice. I'm still in touch with some of them. Mm -hmm. went on to, uh, you know, be serious practitioners uh, after prison. Um, but nonetheless, I think, you know, I saw a lot of changes and a lot of men through, uh, through that work. But I'll, I'll tell you, and this kind of goes into the radical responsibility model a bit as well. So as I was leading this twice weekly meditation, 
meditation group, and and I was noticing, you know, if it was a nice, nice day out, people wouldn't show up. They'd rather go out to the yard, play softball or whatever, you know. So mm -hmm. I, I remember having thoughts like, oh, this is going to be kind of hard, you know, to get real traction here because my fellow prisoners are a little on the flaky side. And, of course, I recognize those kind of judgmental thoughts right. not being helpful. And I thought, well, what, how can I create this differently or what am I doing? And so I was always looking to how I could, you know, not I was never proselytizing, but how can I create something, you know. And, um, and then at some point, um, we, I had the opportunity to invite someone to come to a program there who integrated 12-step work and mindfulness meditation. Mm -hmm. And so I invited some of my friends from the 12-step group, and they came there, and some of them stuck. So now I had a group of people to kind of do participatory research on, including myself, anecdotal research just by observation, uh, who were involved in both the 12-step work and the meditation and mindfulness training. Mm -hmm. And uh, then when we started the hospice program, I recruited from both of those uh, groups groups, uh, the, the uh, prisoners that we brought into the hospice training. And so once we got that going, then I was able to observe myself and a group of men who were involved in meditation, 12-step work, and the, and the hospice service, which was incredibly transformational to put your attention on the needs of someone else instead of your own and be confronted with your own mortality through that work. And then later on, I had the opportunity, I connected with uh, someone who's one of my closest friends today, uh, who contacted me, wanted to use some of my writing. I'd been publishing in various journals on the outside, wanted to use some of my writings in their programs. And so I asked them about what they were doing. And, and I kind of understood the bit, the lineage that they came from. I was aware of it. And, and, uh, but this was a completely secular training and, and, uh, I got interested in it. They started sending me their newsletter. I got really interested in it. I gave them permission to use my writing. And then I eventually I was able to get that training into the prison. And, uh, it was, uh, it's called the event. And in prison, we called it beyond release. We changed the name to beyond release. And we did four of them during the last three years I was there, a very intense three-day training, 12 hours a day, with about 30 prisoners each time, very mixed group of all races, all criminal backgrounds, all religious backgrounds, or lack thereof, and very, 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 very intense training, taking people mm -hmm. deep into their family of origin, uh, uh, conditioning and uh, deep into their trauma, An incredibly powerful training. And, and if the institution had known what it was, they never would have let in. They would have let in if, about the results, but the, the means they wouldn't right. because it was very physical. Uh, it, it, we really took people deep into rage and rage holds. It was a very dicey kind of training. And uh, so, but I recruited the men into that, not exclusively, but I certainly recruited a lot of men into that who were involved in the meditation work and the hospice work and the 12-step work. And uh, then they got involved in this. And then we started a men's group of graduates from that. I think after we did two of them, we started a men's group of graduates and we're, we're doing this uh, men's group. And the, the men in this men's group, we had about a, a, about a dozen men in this group who were all involved in meditation, 12-step, hospice work, and the event work. And uh, we were we were studying uh, Jungian men male archetypal psychology, and uh, and they were they were incredibly transformed group of individuals, and many of them released you know end up transferring to other prisons and started all kinds of programs there. Mm -hmm. In fact, the warden was so impressed with the level of transformation that was happening that he hired my friend uh, to be his executive coach. And then after I left, uh, my friend ended up doing trainings for all the executive staff, the medical staff, the nursing staff, the psychology staff, the, the management staff at that federal prison and went on to do the same for three or four more federal prisons. Wonderful. So 
the, the I'm sorry for the long story, but the point of this was that there is no one magic bullet. You know, and I, I love meditation. I think meditation is, you know, the the panacea, but it's not. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a meditation I, teacher. I understand. <laughs> what, what what I saw was, you know, uh, it took uh, a group of, of these things to reach a tipping point for any individual into transformation, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so, where that is, tipping point is for anyone, you don't know. But I saw a lot of people tipping over into deep transformation mm -hmm. by the connection of of some kind of contemplative work, some kind of self-awareness and contemplative work, and some kind of uh, dealing with their substance abuse issues. The 12-step path is a very profound path, doing the service work, and then being involved in this tense uh, trauma work and shadow work uh, really led to profound change. Yeah. So one one last thing I want to uh, chat with you about is um, is about the connection between that you see between radical responsibility and what needs to change in our culture in our society. How do we how do we shift the trajectory that seems to be happening? Um, in a way that that's that's really intensely creative. Yeah. Well, just as a sidebar, um, I also have a training called, I do radical responsibility trainings and have my radical responsibility book, as you know, but I also have a training called Radical Possibility. And oh. I will and I will be writing a book under that title. And and I really feel radical responsibility is the doorway to radical possibility. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, um, also, uh, I just want to say I ended up starting two national organizations while I was in prison. I don't say that to pat myself on the back um, at all, but you're not supposed to be able to do that when you're in prison. Right. <laughs> and so people who think, you know, they can't make a difference or, you know, they're just one person. I mean, you cannot be in a more powerless situation than being in a maximum security prison. It's what sociologists call a total institution, which means it's like a totalitarian state. Mm -hmm. and if you buck the system there, you were in four point restraints, being pumped full of hell at all and hosed down at night on a concrete bunk. So resistance was literally futile. So how do you get anything done there? Well, I got it all done by being professional, being consistent, being kind, uh, manifesting my Buddhist values, but primarily through the mindset of radical responsibility. Mm -hmm. And and so these are flourishing national movements today, the prison hospice movement and the prison mindfulness movement. Mm -hmm. And that all started from a prison cell, but it was based on these simple principles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in, in terms of what's going on in society, you know, unfortunately, I mean, we have a lot of good things in our culture, obviously, um, in terms of principles. Um, but there's a lot of blame and shame running through our culture. And, mm -hmm. and for me, and this is not to demonize Christianity, I'm a lover of all faiths and spirituality. Um, but there's a particular strain, kind of Calvinist, Protestant, Christian, that theology of of uh, total depravity, the flawed nature of, of uh, humanity, uh, which I think is a complete, absolute misunderstanding of Christian theology. Um, but uh, nonetheless, it's had a profound influence. And so, you know, um, if you really have the mindset that that human beings absent some, which is really the mindset in this country, that human beings absent some coercive threat of, you know, in punishment, imprisonment, 
being ostracized, now being canceled by a cancel culture, you know, well, apart from that kind of threat, humans are not going to behave badly. That basically we have the seed of of evil in us. And, and, you know, if we're not coerced into good behavior, we're going to behave badly. That's basically, whether people would articulate it or not, that's really the default influence in our culture. And so we have a very, you know, our culture is all around uh, reward and punishment. And you look at our institutions, they're all shame-based and punishment-based. Uh, we That's why we talk about the school the prison pipeline. We have a school system that culturally matches up with the prison system, you know, so, um, so we have that. And today, um, you know, I've been involved in, in social transformation, social justice work ever since I ended up in prison. And that was my awakening. Uh, and ever since I've been out, I've been out for something like 20, going on 24 years. Um, uh, a lot of around the world, all kinds of, uh, you know, prison reform and, and, uh, and you know, peace work, working right issues of homelessness and and uh, all kinds of things around the world. And, um, you know, a number of years ago, I felt like, you know, I used to think I had my tribe, so to speak, of people involved in sort of contemplative social action, contemplative social justice work. In other words, wisdom based. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh you know, there's always been the less wisdom-based forms of that, but there really was a. I felt there was a tribe and a a dominance of of socially engaged Buddhism and contemplative social action, and you know, and really lining up with uh, with Kingian, uh, uh, the approach of Martin Luther King and Dorothy Day, and many for many other different traditions, as well as all the great uh, Asian figures in socially engaged Buddhism and and uh, people like Thich Nhat Hanh, Selakshi Raksa, and and uh, you know. So many others. And um, but a number of years ago, things started shifting <laughs> and my tribe went somewhere else. <laughs> Interesting. You know, and the dominant form of uh, social justice work today is all based on blame and shame. Mm-hmm. And in my view, it's, it's under their goals are the same as mine. Their concerns are the same as mine. But uh, and, and I don't think it's intentionally so, but it's drifted into this very blame and shame based approach to social mm-hmm. justice. It's very much around victim identities. Mm-hmm. And despite that, I I feel an affinity for their goals. I I don't think their strategies are going to get us there. In They're fact, I think their strategies the are doing perpetuating mentality, really. Exactly. I think the strategies are doing more harm than good. So that really puts me, you know, I have a hard time if I even start speaking about that publicly, people start thinking I'm a Republican. You know, no, I understand. I've been I've been a progressive liberal Democrat my whole life, but yeah. I am becoming more of a kind of a centrist in today's culture. I'm kind of I would think of myself as center left, and it's really the only place you can find reasonable dialogue. This uh, is in a podcast world with some of the heterodox thinkers in the podcast world, and and you can have reasonable conversations because the incredibly polarized culture we have between the right and left, they don't want to talk to each other. They just want to cancel each other out, destroy each other. They want to win. It's a winner-take-all culture that we have. Mm-hmm. One side wants to grab power and then shove their agenda down the other. And it's the same on the left and the right. I'm more aligned with the agendas of the left for the most part, but I still don't believe in the strategies. And I think it's creating more harm than good. I think, mm-hmm. you know, that's how we get leaders like Trump as a backlash to mm-hmm. that kind of thinking. So, you know, anyway, I think we have real issues now. And it's kind of the extreme wave of, of an inevitable, you know, human era of, of what's generally regarded as postmodernist thought, which is very important, brought a lot of good things. But we're kind of at the extreme edge. And I think this is eventually will be the tipping point into integral thinking and people can have that integral mindset of seeing the good in everything and, and wanting to just bring 
bring the best forward from all the different kind of cultural mm -hmm. mimetic values. You know, we hear a lot about the culture wars, which is basically the fight between traditionalism and postmodernism in the mm -hmm. landscape of modernism. And, you know, eventually we need to be able to get out of that in integral thinking where you see there's good in all that, mm -hmm. you know, there's good in all that. You don't never want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. There's good in all these different mimetic values, but mm -hmm. that's not where we are right now. Right. right. We're in the extremes of the postmodernist leading edge of that. And, whether it's going to another generation to what it's going to take to really tipping up people over to integral thinking, I don't know. But in the meantime, you know, in the meantime, blame and, shit, blame and shame has never <laughs> been more at the forefront of our culture than right. it is right now. Right. And that's why I'm so appreciative of of what you have created, certainly in the book, because people can, you know, it's easily accessible. But more than that, in 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 what it is that you're sharing, the messages that you're sharing, the 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 wisdom that you're putting out there. And, uh, you know, and I feel like what you've just talked about is we, we could have a start a whole other conversation about it. And maybe sometime we will, because I feel like that's at the heart of whether we focus on what's wrong or whether we focus on what's possible. And that mm -hmm. is going to determine how how successful we are, how we move forward as a mm -hmm. as a as a race, as a human race. You know, one of my teachers uh, remarked that um, if you if you have a you know a group of human beings, a society, a community of human beings that fundamentally, on some level, feel bad about themselves, mm. what kind of world are they going to create? Right. What kind of, what kind of institutions are they going to create? Oh, yep. You know. Yeah, it's self protection uh, or you know, self medicating so, so, or you know whatever it yeah. is, it comes out of that other place. So radical responsibility is grounded in uh, the notion of. Um, of unconditional basic goodness or what mm -hmm. uh, theologian Matthew Fox called original blessing as opposed to original sin. And, uh, you know, and that's and, the working title of my book is original blessing. And then I was like, well, but Matthew Fox has written that, but then I hear, you know, it's okay. You can still use the same title because well, you that's, can. Yeah. that's the one. <laughs> so um, how can people find more out about what you're doing? Well, they can go to my basic website, fleetmall.com, and uh, kind of get everywhere from there. But if you're interested in my courses and the online summits we do, HeartMind Institute, which is heartmind.co, mm -hmm. heartmind.co. And if you're interested in the prison work, prisonmindfulness.org, um, uh, mpha.org for the uh, prison hospice work and, and so mm -hmm. forth. Great. Or in the book, uh, Radical yes. Responsibility, you can go to RadicalResponsibilityBook.com and read all about the book mm -hmm. and all the accolades from other best-selling authors. And, and I you know can, it's it's backwards, you know, what people are seeing, yeah. but here it is. <laughs> and you can you can download a free chapter uh, at RadicalResponsibilityBook.com. Yeah, and it, and it's, I want to say just personally, it's it's a very worthwhile book to dive into and and really spend time with. <laughs> Well, it's really written as kind of a manual. It's not just a book to read through. Right. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, I really encourage people to get a journal and do all the exercises in the book and really take it as a manual for transformation because mm -hmm. that's what it's intended to be. Yeah. And that's what it seems like your life has been intended to be. Well, that's where I've ended up. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't have the conscious thought, but that's what, what has happened. Yeah. Thank you, Fleet, for a delightful conversation, for sharing yourself and for what you're doing in the world. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lord. And thank you for, to our listeners, our viewers, for being with us today at Wisdom Talk Radio. Join us here regularly for more wisdom, discovery, and illumination. And if you've enjoyed today, please leave us a review because that allows 
anybody else that doesn't know about Wisdom Talk Radio to access this kind of level of wisdom. And, you know, really, it's about transforming the world. So um, that would be wonderful. And um, for more about deepening your connection with your own inner guidance, take the Quantum Connection Quiz today. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us here at Wisdom Talk Radio. We wish you well in your conscious explorations. For more information and to join in the conversation, our website is wisdomtalkradio.com or at Wisdom Talk Radio on Facebook. <laughs>